Welcome to the Hablamos podcast, where we have conversations on teaching, learning, bi- and multilingualism in the classroom. This is a part of the ICMEE project at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Our goal is to embrace multilingualism and support teachers in the classroom. I'm Brandon Hines, your host, and I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Welcome to another episode of Ablamos. Um, today we have Dr. Kelly Demers on. Um, she is an associate professor at St. Anselm. Am I saying that correctly? St. Anselm College? You're perfect. Thank you. Thank you. I always, I read that and for whatever reason I want to say Anselm um, mm-hmm. each time. So it's a very conscious effort to get that correct for me. So that makes me feel good. Um, I've been looking over your faculty page over there, and it looks like you're an associate professor in education. Um, how long have you been there? Uh, I just finished my eighth year, um, and it's a small department, so um, I have taught, I feel like I've taught every kind of course there possibly can be, and I feel also my preparation as an elementary teacher allowed me to be able to do that, because I... Uh, you have to teach everything when you're, you're an elementary school teacher. So um, now what I, I teach, it's pr- pretty much centered on three different classes. I teach an integrated arts class because I have an arts background. Um, I, I was a music major. Um, and then I um, teach um, an ELL class for our pre-service teachers. And then I also teach a multicultural perspectives class. Um, so, um, but it took several years to kind of get that all solidified. Mm. I, I see uh, also digging through your CV, well, not really the CV, but the online page here, that you're, you've uh, definitely experienced Boston and the East Coast. Um, yeah. And so I'm interested to get your perspective, especially on, um, on like multicultural perspectives on what it's like being in the East Coast, because we're out here in Nebraska, which is definitely mm-hmm. a different world than, you know, east of the Mississippi, and I'm also from Denver, so gateway yeah. to the west. Um, so that'll yeah. be very interesting as the late landscape looks a lot different out there. Okay. Well, first of all, I was born and raised in Massachusetts, so I'm a lifer. Um, I, Jen, I married a man from New Jersey, so he is now a lifer in Massachusetts with me. Um, I will say, just to, um, as just a, a realization of, um, that I've had, um, I would say, over the past 10 years, is that in New England, particularly Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, um, there's some way in which we're isolated from the rest of the country, I I feel like. I think that we don't often understand um, perspectives outside of Massachusetts, particularly in Eastern Mass where I live. I mean, I work in New Hampshire, but Eastern Mass where we have all of these universities. um, And I think it's fair to say that um, that colors the way in which we view the rest of the country. Um, so it's been really exciting for me over the past 10 years to be able to leave this region of the country, go to other parts of the world, other parts of the United States. Um, and, and there is a different perspective. Um, Massachusetts, where I live, um, uh, was, I believe, the first state to really talk about education reform in the early 1990s. I mean, when we're talking education reform, we're talking about high stakes testing, um, more focus on accountability. Um, but there, I would say Massachusetts was a leader in that. And now Massachusetts schools are 
fairly successful. They're what, you know, in terms of if we're looking at success based on testing, um, they're seen as if Massachusetts were a country, it would be, you know, in the top 10 um, countries in the world, but because based on the way that we do um, education in the United States, just speaking. <laughs> would, um, would you say that's because of like certain strategies that Massachusetts and New England have like adopted or what do you think that would be or where that's success, I guess? Um, um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a focus on education. Um, Massachusetts is very different than New Hampshire in several ways. So the state motto of New Hampshire is live free or die, which means, and it's so catchy. It's like, wow, I wish I thought of that. That would be like the great name of a group or an album or something. But it's just so, it, but it, what it really is indicating is municipalities and the freedom of municipalities are really important. So local control is seen as really um just almost the sacred thing in Massachusetts. I mean, in New Hampshire. In Massachusetts, there's a more bureaucracy, I would say, and I, that's neither good nor bad. It's just an observation. So um, our Department of Education um, is in Massachusetts is much more focused on, um, not I don't want to say quality, but just um, monitoring um, teacher education programs, monitoring whether teachers are meeting um, the requirements that are needed, make, meeting all their course requirements um, so that they can be adequately licensed. Um, that's not to say that's not happening in New Hampshire, but because local control is so important, there's that difference. So not every state in New England is the same. Um, but I think in Massachusetts particularly, there is a, a lot of attention um, on teacher preparation and then what happens um, in the classroom um, and, and tracking that all of the time. Um, in terms of second language learners, I mean, I don't, it, there's been a somewhat checkered history in Massachusetts. Um, I, I don't know if you're aware um, that in 2002, there was a ballot initiative that eradicated bilingual education, not unlike um, what was in um, this, the same year that this happened, there was a ballot initiative in Denver, actually, in Colorado. Um, uh, it did not pass in Colorado, it passed in uh, Massachusetts. So we went from in uh, the fall of 2002 of having transitional bilingual programs, uh, two-way programs, um, ESL classes, um, the ballot, this was an anti-bilingual law, uh, spearheaded by Ron Unz or a group uh, related to Ron Unz who, who did the same thing in California in 1998. And so, um, so in 2002, um, we transitioned um, from having all of these resources for bilingual, multilingual students to having um, it be a law that students had to um, take a sheltered English immersion class for one year. The assumption was that they would learn English in one year. Right, and then um, and it turned out that didn't work out well for Massachusetts because um, the justice, the federal justice department got involved and basically said you're not serving English language learners. Mm. So this shifted the way that teachers were prepared in Massachusetts. That they, um, even if you were a content area teacher or a standard elementary teacher, you would have to take a course in your teacher preparation program that would help you serve English language learners. Um, and if you were in a community where you worked with English language learners and you hadn't had that preparation in your, um, when you were in college or at university, you would have to take a course that would, you would be endorsed. So you have to, in Massachusetts, receive an endorsement. It's not the same as a certification, but it says you um, have been prepared to work with English language learners. Okay. Um, 
So that has shifted in Massachusetts. But the way that that's affected my work in New Hampshire is that half our students are from Massachusetts and are planning to work in Massachusetts. Okay. So, um, we now have this English language learning class um, that um, we require of all students, all elementary students. Um, I wish that we would have secondary students take it, um, but that the, the program of study is so tight, it's hard to get it in there. Um, so really my focus, um, I came into um, working around and with multilingual learners in sort of this uh, uh, circuitous way where I started in my doctoral program really focused on multicultural education and pe critical pedagogy. And um, I took a course with Maria Brisk um, on uh, bilingualism at the same time that my daughters were in a two-way English-Spanish bilingual program. Okay. Um, and I realized, oh, these, this is a practical way of trying to embody, to, to um, practice the pedagogy related to um, multiculturalism. If I start to understand, oh, multilingual students have specific needs, they're not necessarily being addressed in schools, um, and how and, and it's a social justice issue so how how do i bring these things together so um but i will say um it was from a personal experience of seeing my daughters in this school and seeing um the latino families sort of marginalized because they weren't dominant um yeah. and, and seeing it as a social justice issue and realizing oh there are also these language issues that need to be addressed pedagogically well, I'm very interested as uh, in one of the courses that you um, actually no, not one of the courses, something that you have written, which is um, you're um, looking at teaching pre-service teachers. Um, yeah, the what is it? Um, is it meeting the needs? for the English language learner? Oh, that's the course I teach, yes. Yeah, yeah. I So I teach pre-service teachers as well. Yeah. Um, and I teach in something that really, the students are here, I, I have encountered a very interesting thing where my students are often somewhat hesitant and resistant to any sort of social justice, multicultural, mm -hmm. like broadening. And it's a very tight realm and I understand. So I teach uh, integrating technology in the classroom. So like educational technologies, instructional yeah. technologies. And yeah. I often try and like focus on finding, you know, multicultural like avenues mm -hmm. of thought and openness and here in Nebraska I often find that it's I'm breaking new ground which maybe this isn't the course for that um, mm -hmm. but I feel you know maybe I can get away with this kind of diversion not really diversion just new avenue of thought where maybe they mm -hmm. won't then we explicitly come across this in other courses during their time. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, what have you encountered as you've taught pre-service teachers this? Well, okay, so most of my students, um, it's a small Catholic college, St. Anselm. Most, like I said, it's really a college that serves the region. So it's mostly students from New England. Most of them are white and middle class. Um, it's, I'm often, I'm, I laugh because there are so many students now that come from the hometown that I grew up in and went to the same Catholic church that I went to. So it feels um, so that there's a sense of home there. Um, but they haven't thought about many of these issues. They, um, they um, many of our students um, mostly are women. Um, they want to do really good work. So they see teaching as um, a way to do that. They love the elementary ed majors, love children. Um, and so they actually, even though they're from New England, 
Um, many of them have been fairly isolated. Mm -hmm. um, they haven't had these kinds of conversations because they've grown up in these racially and linguistically homogeneous contexts and sometimes religious because most of everyone they know is Catholic um, and or they've gone to Catholic schools. So some of these ideas are brand new to them. They haven't thought about it. Like the idea of critiquing um, the American dream and meritocracy um, because they truly believe, uh -huh. and I, I understand this, that, that if they work hard, they're going to get ahead. Um, and that could be true for everyone. And so there are lots of ways in which they're surprised. I think I banned the word shocked. I said, you can't write shocked anymore <laughs> in your papers because I think I can't read it anymore. And so um, we, so all our students have to take the, um, the meeting the needs of English language learners class. Um, then students, students who um, are going to get their, they, you, they can minor in ESOL certification. And if they minor in that, they take the multicultural class. So there is the multicultural class addresses um, race, class, gender, disability, and linguistic diversity. Um, and we really talk about how all those things are intersected. So um, a lot of times when they, t uh, students who take the, both of those classes will say, wow, they overlap. Um, even though in the meeting the needs of English language learners class, we do talk about pedagogy much more. Um, but it's always within this assumption that, uh, that uh, being multilingual is, uh, we align with, you know, I align with this uh, tra translanguaging, heteroglossic approach to language, um, that we aren't these, you know, bilingual people aren't these, these two monolingual people in one brain. Um, and, and then we talk about how there's an ideology associated with language, um, that um, we decide who gets to decide what standard English is. Um, uh, are, is it the, oh, go on. I was going to say, that's always, I, I used to teach writing as well, and like, yeah, yeah. that's always an interesting conversation. Right. It is an interesting conversation. And then we talk about the difference between, and this, I mean, this is, this is all in the literature, but it's so new to my undergraduates. They just haven't thought about it. Like, mm -hmm. and so I'll say, is there really an incorrect way to make your meaning clear? And so we talk about that. And, and um, they, you know, it, it can be very complicated. It can be confrontational for some students, um, th but they have to move away from, in my, my opinion, um, based on my own experience as a teacher who was ill-prepared to work with English language learners, that they really need to figure out how to see um, everything students are bringing in as an asset as opposed to a deficit and that you're not fixing them by teaching them English. You're just adding to their linguistic resource. Um, you know, we, and, and some of this is true for me, too, because as I said, I came into working with multilingual learners, or at least helping my students work with multilingual learners from a sort of backdoor way where I was seeing it as a social justice issue, and it is a social justice issue, but it's a social justice issue that needs to be um, uh, presented in a practical way. Like, these are the steps you take to um, help people um, develop the social capital they need. Um, linguistic capital, um, how do you um, give them that at the same time honoring their own experience and the, and the values that they're coming, your students are coming to school with. Um, so what I love this work so much, it's so fun for me, and I like, um, other than banning the word shocked, um, <laughs> they, you know, it, it's really enjoyable for me, enjoyable for me um, and so satisfying to see them start to problematize their own experience. Mm. Um, and, um, and then I often joke, I say, well, you know, 
Thanksgiving could be more challenging this year. Um, so just when you talk to your Uncle Joe, just, you know. <laughs> just Try and engage. Engage in a calm way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that part is really exciting for me. And then I remind them, because I just brought this up, you know, when I was a teacher, I, I was certified in the early 90s. Um, I was teaching in the mid-90s to the early 2000s. And I worked with a bilingual, multilingual population, and I had very little um, preparation for that, almost no preparation. So that when I um, had a student that was being transitioned out of bilingual education into my classroom, um, and I received a piece of writing from them, I was flummoxed. I did not know what to do. Um, and now, of course, I see that my students were developed, they, they, there was a developmental continuum, and they they were, um, they were right on track, um, and I just didn't have the skills to really help, help them and move them forward. Um, and I'm not in the same boat. This was not something that was done in Massachusetts at the time. Um, and I think this is a really positive change in Massachusetts and for our students in Saint, at St. Anselm, this, this connection. Yes, your content te teachers, and you are equally responsible for helping your English language learners be as successful as your English dominant learners so yeah. I, I teach a lot of secondary and or secondary pre-service teachers and like yeah. that right there it's I, I try and drive that home of the notion of like yes indeed you will end up being responsible for this in at least some way shape or form and right. that one is kind of like a I get very brand new pre-service teachers so it's yeah. kind of like maybe the first time they've heard that sometimes right the, the look of shock and resistance on their face of, no, that's not what I signed up for. I'm here yeah, to teach. It's shock and then resistance. <laughs> <laughs> Geometry, well, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, well, we get that, we, you know, we get that if we um, put students in an urban school too quickly, mm -hmm. um, then they'll say, oh, those students aren't respectful. They don't like the teachers. They're mean. And like, it's a, it's a different experience than you had. And so it, and so not to put a quality on it necessarily. Yeah. Um, and now, of course, my students have become, you know, one thing I also do um, in both the multicultural class and the ELA class is I make sure there is a service learning component. We have a wonderful um, center, the Amelia Center for Social Engagement, where students are able to engage in service learning. And I really do believe it's a way of engaging in service learning that's beneficial to the community as well, because sometimes in service learning, it seems to just, it's like um, volunteer tourism a little bit. Okay. But um, the Amelia Center works really hard to make sure that that doesn't happen. And they're constantly interacting with the community-based organizations and the schools that they're working with. So I make sure that my students have um, experience working with an English language learner um, when they're taking my ELL class um, because it doesn't make sense if they don't have practical experience. And that experience can be broad. It can be in a classroom. Um, it also, I like it when they work at community centers and they're working with adult English language learners because for me that also makes them understand this is not just about one child, this is about families. Right. Um, and so what, and then what does it mean to um, be a refugee? What does it mean to be an asylum seeker? What does it mean to deal with the current um, atmosphere around asylum seekers and refugees? And my students don't know the difference between a refugee and a, an asylum seeker. And so we have to define that. And then they meet they actually meet people who are going through this experience. Um, and then again, that shifts their, their view. Um, and the other thing, and I'm delighted by this, is they also become, um, I would say, fierce critics of the way in which bilingual education or um, the uh, teaching English language learners 
Um, and I don't love that term English language learners. I like multilingual learners. Um, I don't like to say ELL because it feels almost essentializing to students, like, like this whole group of students who are all incredibly diverse and interesting and fascinating. Um, but yet I find myself doing it. But they, they become these um, fierce critics of the way in which students are either having their needs addressed or not addressed. Because, you know, there's a lot, there are laws that say we're supposed to be working with English language learners and helping them get access to the curriculum. And sometimes that might not always happen the way um, that we expect. And so that's also an important lesson for my students as well. So how do you work in a context like that um, and be successful? Like how do, how do you maneuver a complex bureaucratic system so that you're able to best help your students? Mm -hmm. I um, often tell my pre-service teachers that like, like it or not, that will kind of be a reality of mm -hmm. sometimes you're gonna have to not, you know, not necessarily find confrontational ways, but maybe sideways yeah. avenues of trying to further your own vision of, right. you know, right. what your teaching ethos looks like. Wait till you have professional status before you. <laughs> just yeah, I often tell them that that for yeah. the first, you know, first three years, like maybe yeah. you're not going to be able to do everything you want to do. <laughs> yeah, and that's yes, and it will it will be hard. It, I mean, for my students, for many of them, it will be really hard because they they are um, are moral moral people, and so it can be upsetting for them when they see things unfold and very in ways that seem very unfair and unjust. And then, of course, you know, they um, were located um, right in Manchester, New Hampshire, which is it's a city. It's a New Hampshire city. It's not like Boston. Mm -hmm. um, Boston is not like New York. So um, but there it has been designated as a refugee city. Um, the school system is huge. There are 13,000 students. Um, schools are not funded in the same way um, as they're funded um, in the, um, the affluent community um, on the other side of campus. And so students get to go to both of those sites and they can see how um, schooling is not necessarily um, equitably resourced. And right. so that, that's very eye-opening to them as well. So I think in terms of English for multilingual learners um, um, and then and all of the other issues that come up in the multicultural class, I really want them to understand that it's pretty complex. Yeah. Um, they're not easy answers necessarily. Um, and not only is it complex, but there are lots of different reasons um, why things happen. And also for themselves as teachers, they could be one teacher in one context um, and another teacher in another context, depending on the resources and who they're with and what that looks like. Um, so it's kind of a tall order for 19 year olds to think about that because I'm still thinking about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and still getting like confused and messed up about it. <laughs> so, um, so we get to do it together. It's really actually, I you know I love doing research and I love, um, but I the teaching is my most favorite thing. So, excellent. We're kind of coming close to the end here. Um, normally, we end up with two different segments. One, what is advice? What is your advice for? pre-service and, 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 you know, newer teachers out there. Um, and then also, do you have anything closing which you would like to talk about? Anything that you're currently writing? Any, anything that you're currently involved in that you kind of want to promote and get some attention towards? Huh, wow. 
let me think. So what advice would I give teachers? It's funny because I give it to them all the time. So now you ask me directly. Like, oh. <laughs> summarize your entire teaching catalog right now no, into sorry. two sentences. <laughs> um, I think, um, I, what I would like for my, my pre-service teachers that I work with is, um, I think what I've just said is um, this idea of understanding that our, all of our students come in with some kinds of resources. It doesn't mean that every context that a child comes from is perfect or wonderful or there aren't issues, but there almost always is something that you can find. Um, and one of those things is the language that students speak at home. Um, I think always be looking for that. Sometimes you're gonna look, have to look extra hard because I've, I've had lots of students. <laughs> There's always one that um, I remember when I was teaching, I would think I have this down so great. And then there'd be some magical student that I'd be like, oh, I'm so humble now. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I thought that was good. Um, so I think that that's, so seeing students as this, as coming in with resources. Um, and then in terms, and this is for me, I'm thinking about this too, is just this, also thinking about language because I don't think I was prepared for this and I'm thinking about this all the time now is like and I don't love the term academic language and I'm not sure yet why I don't love the term I'm feeling like there's some like colonialist undertone to it which is completely ill-defined and maybe I'm wrong um, but that's just my discomfort with it right now but how you know what what do you mean by language how do you use language um, how does language get used in a manipulative way? Like all, you know, so there's the practical learning language and then there's the also, how does language get used to promote or, um, or, or subtract from particular viewpoints and ideologies? So those are the things I'd like them to think. So kind of lofty things where, but they, they don't need to articulate it to be, um, be going in that direction. Right. And then in terms of what I'm working on right now, so I feel really fortunate because I'm, going, I'm on sabbatical in the fall, so I'm really, really excited about that. Um, although I'm terrified I'm just going to drink coffee all day um, and then start drinking beer at five. So I'm just right. going to do that. Um, I'm working on a, a, a study um, with Cara Viesca um, through the ICMEE grant. Um, we're looking at one of the race and, class, uh, race and education, education modules um, and so we're looking at that, we're looking at if there's an ideological shift that has happened for the participants in terms of race. Um, and we're trying to look at it from a layered perspective. So um, we're, going, we're going to analyze it um, using inductive qualitative um, methodologies, but we're also going to be looking at the social context that was occurring when um, these uh, that participants um, took this module. And then we're also going to be engaging in an autoethnography around our own experiences of race, because that's going to frame the way in which we um, interpret the data that um, was generated from these modules. So that's what I'm working on right now. That'll be an interesting East Coast, Midwest, West kind of uh, autoethnography viewpoint there between the two of you. I think so, especially because Kara, you know, is from, she's from Utah. So she's from out west, and she's yeah, been taught in Boston to Denver to Nebraska. <laughs> I know, I know. She, yeah, because I imagine she and I both were at BC at the same time. Um, yeah, so she, um, she has this different perspective, and she's a different generation than I am. So she also has that perspective, um, and so, 
So I'm, I'm curious as to how it's going to look different for her. And then what does that mean when we look at the data? Um, because we, you know, it, we filtered data through our experiences and our ideological lenses that um, the beauty of ideology is it's hidden and we don't know it's there. So, so how do we do that? Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's the messy version. All right. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for asking me and have enjoy the rest of your summer. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye.